Missionary's too dangerous. That's how you get the most potent baby possible. I like the idea that some babies are more potent than others. <laughs> this is a very mild baby. Only cries five days a week. I'd like to think the most potent baby doesn't need to cry because it's not a little bitch. Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly, if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. What's on your mind this week? I just wanted to start with a little bit of clarification. Of course. A few episodes ago, we were talking about the Latin American revolutions, and we talked a little bit about what you would give up in a revolution and whether or not it even makes sense to pursue a revolution if you have to wreck your society. It always makes sense. Scorched earth, baby. That's the only way. <laughs> and I mentioned a conversation that I had with a colored South African about apartheid. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to clarify because I had said that he was kind of against destroying the regime. And what I meant was he was against the violent overthrow of the regime. Mm. He didn't want to see his country break down into warfare. I think it kind of sounded as though I was saying he was against changing it at all. Like he was in favor of the peaceful reforms and in favor of reforming the nation generally. But he was against violently overthrowing and civil warring the whole thing right so he wasn't pro like apartheid no 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 no. he was definitely not pro apartheid it was not a good system for him right that makes sense or anyone or well some people i suppose it always favors the people at the top john always favors someone yeah so being opposed to violent overthrow is a kind of different thing and it's important to make that distinction i think that is important good clarification i was also thinking about something i think it was on the same show and you were talking about how if we were to terraform another planet mm-hmm. i mean i think you were just kind of right speculating wildly about you know maybe new life would form that would give us like superpowers or be beneficial or something you were lamenting how everything is so uh deadly i guess yeah it always feels like things are trying to kill you and i know that with bacteria Sometimes there's good bacteria. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like in our bodies right now, there's bacteria that's helping us out because it helps them out. Symbiotic, sure. I don't know if a new planet would have like a cool new weird thing or if it would just be more bad stuff. It seems unlikely that there would be anything new or cool. I mean, there might be something cool, but anything helpful at least. Because generally symbiotic things grow up together over the course of millions of years. But it made me think about the fact that generally speaking, natural things out in the world, they're not great. Like all good things for us, for humans, for life, for society have been kind of man-made. You know what I mean? Yes. The internet, shelter, plumbing. I'm just going to stop at plumbing. That's the best thing ever. Plumbing really is the pinnacle, isn't it? Yeah. As convenient as everything else is, cars, airplanes, plumbing is the best thing ever. Yeah. And if you go out into the world, it is trying to kill us. You know, like everything is out to get you. Yeah. A tree could fall on you. Like, (laughs) and they're just Uh, standing still doing nothing, minding their own business and it could still kill you, you know? It's true. It's true. Yeah. And it just struck me because so many people are kind of back to nature kind of people that are like, oh, it's so great to be back in nature. And I mean, I love camping a lot. 
But mm-hmm. the good things in the world are man-made. Agreed. I have a coworker who reminds me a lot of you, actually. I mean, you're not exactly the same, but you're pretty similar. And he loves camping, like legit hardcore, hikes all day, camps overnight. Oh, like backpacking? Yeah. He's apparently like deathly afraid of animals. Deathly afraid of them. He's like, they're out there. I don't want them near me. They don't want me near them. And he seems obviously really freaked out by the idea of running into a cougar or bear, raccoon or snake, just anything. But he loves camping. He's always talking about how cities are the best. The future is the best. If he could choose to be born at any point in history, he would choose to be born today. Whatever the next day is, that's the day he chooses to be born. All correct decisions. All correct observations. And he chalks it up to living the best life you can live because you only have one life or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the right philosophy to have. Mm-hmm. Still seems really against the idea of things out in nature being near him. I mean, <laughs> people that want to go hang out with bears, it's not a good call. Those sorts of people need to be cold. Yeah. Like, I remember I went camping. I took a few friends up to Sequoia in California. And it was, for one of them, the first time they had ever been camping. Mm-hmm. And we saw these... I think they were brown bears and it was like a mother and the cubs and she just wanted to go up and like take pictures and get close to them and stuff. No, no, thank you. I am not going to go any closer to them because that's how you die. Yeah, they're bears. Or if you don't die, that's how you lose an arm. That's no good. That's no good. Somebody, I'm not going to say who because I don't want to throw them out like that, decided to show me a video (laughs) of of a man getting killed by a lion is essentially what happened. Wow, yeah. Yes. I have to imagine it was some kind of conservatory, is that what they're called? Or some kind of sanctuary. It was very wide open. Okay. There was a fence. And I don't know how long the fence was, but it seemed just wide open. It seemed like they were in the wild. Right, but there was Yeah, one of those big national parks in Africa. Yeah. And so people were on one side and there was a lion on the other side. And this man, I don't know how he ended up on the other side of the fence. I don't know if he worked there. But... He walks over to, I suppose, look at the lion's feces or something. Okay. I suppose the lion was pretty close by. You don't really see it until you see the man try to... And he was an older man, so he, like, tried to run away, but not very successfully. And the lion just comes out of nowhere and grabs the dude and knocks him down and pauses for a second, looks around, sees that no one's stopping him, grabs the man by his neck and pulls him to a bush. And it was just over very fast wow yeah maybe you should not be in the proximity of a lion that wants to kill things yeah wild animals are pretty wild it was terrifying it was terrifying to see stay away from large animals they can drag you especially large peak predators (laughs) yeah they do not have any trouble pulling you 10 feet in two seconds as they tear into your neck your friend is a fool you wanted to get so close to bears So I've been pretty taken, I guess, with what I've been seeing in the news and on social media and everything in the last couple of years. Mm. I think it's pretty unavoidable for everyone that there's a lot of negativity and anger and frustration and pessimism out there mm. now in just the broader culture. Right. What's striking about it to me and why I want to talk about it today is because when I look out at society and I look at the world... And I look at our prospects for the future. It doesn't seem very different from six years ago or seven years ago when everyone was super optimistic and feeling good about the world and everything was going to be great and technology was going to save us all. Like 
everything looks pretty much the same or a little bit better. Certainly mm-hmm. economically, it's a bit better. And yet everyone now feels as though the world is about to collapse. Mm. Like, obviously, there are political trends that people don't like right. and are frustrated by. But I just don't get how that shift happened and why it's so pervasive. And it's really hard to avoid. Like, I even find in myself, like, I have this deep, unalloyed optimism mm-hmm. and have always had that. Right. But when I think about it now, I almost feel defensive about it mm-hmm. because I have this, even in my own mind, onslaught of pessimism and view that things aren't going to necessarily work out the way I want them to work out. Like, it's remarkable how many different people have contacted me or mentioned various similar pessimistic concepts in terms of doubts about democracy, in terms of doubts about the progress of technology and automation and future prosperity and all, all of these sorts of things. So many different people have brought up these different topics and these different veins. And none of these things, especially the doubts around democracy, no one would have brought that up six years ago, seven years ago. Just wouldn't have even crossed anybody's mind. And now it's pervasive. And I don't understand quite how that happened. I think the news plays a big role in people's perception. But is the news really any different than it was? No, but I'm assuming that you're talking about people our age or younger in our general age group. I don't know if you mean older people as well. All generations. Mm. Like I've had people that are 60 come to me and talk about some of these things. Because for me anyways, and maybe it's because I mostly know people my age and you know a little older, a little younger, who have these same pessimistic and cynical ideas or thoughts or feelings about the future. Yeah. I think just see all the bad news. But like, what is all the bad news? I mean, there's some political turmoil around the world, but what is all of this bad news that everyone's so terrified of? I took this journalism class once. Mm. So I'm obviously an expert. Clearly, clearly. Immediately, just in case you have any questions, anyone, I'm a genius at all things journalism. like you... Than Walter Conkright. Like, not even a close second to me. <laughs> but one of the things that my teacher made, this was like a, a point of his when talking about the news, mm. was that news is generally bad. Right. It's negative. Right. News is rarely, if ever, good news. But that's not a new phenomenon. Right. I just think that plays a role in people's perceptions of what's happening. Yeah, you're right. And so I think there's a lot of people who, and again, specifically, in my experience, it's people our age who seem to be the most pessimistic and cynical about everything going on in the world. Because as we're getting older, they're starting to watch the news more and read about what's going on in the world more. And obviously, since the news is mostly negative, all they hear is all the bad stuff that's happening. And so they're affected by all the bad news that they're hearing. And so they start thinking like, well, what's going on? Is the world falling apart? Is everything going terribly? Oh, most young people aren't very happy with this conservative political movement that's kind of arisen in the last year or two. Right, Trump in particular. Yeah. Sure. I don't think you're completely wrong, but if what you're saying is true, wouldn't that not apply to people in their 30s? Would that not have happened to them as well a decade ago? I guess what I'm getting at is I don't know what fundamentally shifted to push everyone toward pessimism. And it's not just politics, it's technology, it's economics. Like People now don't really believe that technology can save us all. You know, like that used to be kind of a core belief, especially of people our age, millennial type people. Automation. Everything was going to get better in the future. That's not, 
the case anymore. I think because a lot of people are obviously not where they probably want to be career-wise or maybe in a different place than they thought they'd be. They see technology as something that's taking away jobs now that maybe they'd ordinarily have had. It's changing the job market in a way that they're still not accustomed to, right? Technology does that. Yes, but that affects older people more. So you would expect that pessimism and cynicism with older people more. And that explains, to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. Trump's election, right? Where people were very disaffected because Mm -hmm. of some of these changes. And so they voted for him as a kind of almost protest candidate. But for younger people, it doesn't really make any sense because most millennials, or I guess that's speaking a little bit broadly, but a lot of millennials came of age right around the major recession in 2007, 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. right? And that was, by all accounts, a fairly dark period economically, at the very least. Mm -hmm. Yet in the heart of that recession, and even in the aftermath of that recession, people were not as negative and pessimistic as they are now. And I just can't help but think that for most millennials, if not all, the job prospects have improved dramatically in the last decade. Yeah, I would think so. And they're in a much better position now than they were right around the crisis. Because when you you know get out of school right, and you're going into a place where every company is shrinking, you're not going to get a good position. And yet people are all doom and gloom now, despite the fact that we've had a decade of economic growth. <laughs> right. Well, I think specifically at the time, especially for young people, they had this leader in the U.S. specifically, who was all change, positivity. Yeah, we're going to get through this. I'll mm. take care of you. You know, I care about the people. And so it probably made a lot of people optimistic. Yeah, I, I do wonder how much of it just comes down to that. Because if it really just comes down to the right. leader, that seems like a poor explanation. Well, I don't think that's the whole reasoning. I think it has an effect. It definitely affects mm. some people, not everyone, obviously. But also, and I've noticed this, is a lot of people have sort of memed how difficult it is to get a job. I don't, I don't know if you've seen that. Sure, yeah. People are like, oh, for an entry-level job, you need like 80 years of experience and six college degrees. And right, right. If everyone just kind of keeps making these jokes about it and they stay in this echo chamber of, well, it's impossible because we don't have the experience and we can't get anything done, it sort of starts to really have an impact on their state of mind. Yeah, certainly memification is a discouraging trend because it makes everyone increasingly feel that whatever they're involved with is more farcical and more difficult and the other side is worse than it ever was before, even though nothing has changed. It's just that they've exaggerated it more and more, right? Right. And because it's being talked about by so many other people, it's backed up. I guess what what's really at the core of my thoughts with this is... I remember when I read A History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell, and I remember one of the things that he said in it, at least I think it was in that book. It was definitely a book. It definitely was a book. (laughs) But he was talking about how most major thinkers and most philosophers are a product of their time. Mm. Like most of them reflect the undercurrents of whatever is going on in their society. And it's not even just what's going on in terms of like politics or technological Mm. change or something like that, but what's going on socially, how people feel about things. So when you look at a lot of thinkers, some are fundamentally optimistic, some are fundamentally reformist, some want to tear it all down, right? The revolutionary type people. Scorched earth, baby. Exactly. And I guess when I've been looking at this 
mood change because that's all I can really mm. describe it as. Like it's it's really just a mood change within society. It it makes me feel as though these things almost don't have a real cause. Like society starts moving in one direction in terms of its psyche, and then it builds momentum and is self-reinforcing. It's kind of like when people talk about how the pendulum swings, mm -hmm. right? And you go over to one direction and it gets super conservative in the 80s, and then it swings back to Clinton in the 90s, right? That process, I, I don't really understand, but I guess I always thought about it before as having really significant underlying causes. Mm. Like the end of the Cold War caused the last shift in my mind from kind of conservatism to liberal internationalism right. in the 90s. And when I'm watching what's happened this decade, it feels much more like there's no cause. It just it just happens. It just progresses, you know. And these people like Trump, like a lot of the leaders out there now, are just products of their time. And they're just people who have happened to mesh with the general mood. Right. And nothing fundamentally has changed. Right. I think... It comes down to socially. Recently, there's been mm. a lot of complaints with the way things are for people yeah. of color, people who are queer, LBGTQ. And you see like a lot of these movements and a lot of protests for equal treatment, not necessarily mm -hmm. equal rights, just to be treated as everyone else, to be offered the same opportunities. Right. And I think people who who are kind of being talked about as the people who have the opportunities already, who are already in those positions or already have that privilege or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Probably feel attacked, even if necessarily that's yeah. not the case. Yeah. And so you do see this shift because there's political leaders who are talking about how people are trying to take away from us. And there's people who feel that way, feel attacked, feel like even though they didn't do anything or they don't think they did anything, that they're the ones who are being targeted. Or blamed, sure. And so I can see that being a cause for how the shift socially anyways. But that's an interesting thing that you bring up because you're right, the last several years... Mm -hmm have seen an uptick and a real rapid rise in terms of people's anger and frustration around issues like feminism, around issues like race and police brutality and things like that. And yet, if you look at it from a historical perspective from the last 50, 100 years, or even the, just the last 20 or 30 years, things have gotten so much better in terms of race relations, in terms of equality between men and women, in terms of equality of job opportunities between different groups within society. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly my point, that all of these different groups are up in arms and angry, despite the fact that things are consistently getting better. Like, I, I remember when the Black Lives Matter movement started to really take mm -hmm. hold. And I'm not well schooled on police brutality and things like I, I haven't read very much about it. I haven't done very much research about it. But one of the things that I definitely know is that there's a lot less police brutality than there was in the 90s and in the 80s and in the 70s right. and definitely any time before the civil rights movement and so it seems so strange when i would talk to people and they would be like it's worse now than it's ever been and i'm like we had slavery for like 300 years it's not worse than that like it's much better than it was so like sure it's not where it should be right. Like, I, I get that argument completely. Like, obviously, that makes sense. But 
it's not worse than it's ever been. And it has continually been getting better. Right. It's never gotten worse. And so I, well, I, I feel like that just meshes with this underlying pessimism mm. that instead of viewing things as continually moving in the right direction, now it's like, oh, no, things are moving in the wrong direction. But it's not because things are actually moving in the wrong direction or because things have actually gotten worse. It's just because maybe people are more aware of it. Like a lot of people have talked about how with the police brutality, the fact that people have more cell phones mm -hmm. and are taking more photos and film that you see it more. Yeah, I think that's a big thing too. Because I think in certain communities, it's common knowledge that there's still a pretty prevalent amount of police brutality that goes undocumented. And right. then with cell phones and social media, it gets documented now more than ever. And so you see something that's probably been yeah. consistent for maybe the last 10 or 15 years, but now everyone's aware of it. And the people who weren't aware of it are like, oh, it's worse now than it's ever been. And there's people who have been aware of it for a very long time who are like, no, it's always been this way. Or, you know, despite the fact that it's gotten better, this is something sure. that we deal with. And I think specifically like with the Black Lives Matter movement, I don't think it's that hmm. things were going in the wrong direction. I think for them, it was things aren't improving fast enough. Because, you know, people in our community are still dying. People in our community are still being abused and taken yeah. advantage of. And so I think sometimes there's this well-intentioned support and a lot of ignorance from the people who support something that they weren't aware of beforehand. And so you see that pessimism That's true. come up from there, I think, anyways. Yeah, it makes sense that when an issue gets kind of raised in somebody's consciousness for the first time, they're going to be super shocked and appalled about it. Right. Even though it could have been going on first. Right. They're like, oh my God, this is happening. I didn't know this was happening. But just because you didn't know doesn't mean that it's worse now than it was always. It's just it's right. still And people don't have yeah. a huge amount of historical knowledge and context. Yeah, that's true. So, so maybe you're right. Because you're right that I think a lot of these movements are based around ideas of we need to accelerate progress much more than they're based around the sky is falling. And I do still stand by the fact that the radicalization of left-leaning people has really mm. negatively impacted already pretty radical right-leaning people. And so it's creating a lot of contention. Yeah. And you see some of the most extreme candidates rise up because of that contention. And at the right, right place at the right time, one of those candidates is going to win. And it just happened to be sure. in the right this time. Happened to be the guy on the yeah. right this time. Yeah. It's possible that maybe you'll see that swing back to the left at the end of his term or as November's coming up and there's the midterms. Like it's, it's very possible that we'll see a dramatic shift the other way too. But this is another thing that is a part of this pessimism, I think. Mm. And it's this growth of radicalism. And... It's interesting because I'm reading a book on 20th century German history mm -hmm. right now, and I'm almost to the end of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Hitler. Uh. And it's kind of telling how that happened, because obviously there were a ton of problems in Germany in the 20s and 30s. But at the start of the Republic, there were really moderate parties, and there was a center left and a center right that kind of dominated. Mm -hmm. And by the time the Great Depression started, these extreme right and extreme left parties had grown up. And the extreme right happened to win in this instance, and Hitler took power right. and whatnot. But what you also see in the United States, and not just the United States, but throughout Europe, throughout a lot of the world, and I think we may have brought this up once or twice before, is this move away from the center. Mm. And this ties in with the pessimism, because like when people are really angry and upset and frustrated, they go toward more and more radical solutions. 
because they think what we're doing now, the status quo, or even slight tinkering, it's not going to do anything. Mm. We need really radical change. Right. And I don't think people ever appreciate how dangerous that is, or not enough people appreciate how dangerous that is. Because you're right, as people radicalize to the left, people radicalize to the right, and it, they push each other away from the mm. center. It becomes harder to compromise, it becomes harder to progress, harder to build consensus. And obviously we're seeing now in terms of people's realities diverging, people not having any sort of similarity in their shared narrative. Yeah, I, it, it's a hard thing to grapple with. It's hard for me because I you know, want to maintain my worldview and I want to maintain my optimism, mm -hmm. but facing this kind of onslaught, it's somewhat difficult. And I know this varies dramatically between countries because it's funny being in Ireland and comparing it to how people are in the UK. And it's like in Ireland, something like 90% of people support the EU and want to stay in the mm -hmm. EU. And there's still a lot of support for globalization and still a lot of support for the international order and all of that. And Britain, obviously, is in the process of leaving the EU. And they're much more nationalist at this point. They're much more divided in terms of their views on globalization and all of that in a similar way to the mm. US. And so the island right next door, just a 40-minute plane ride, you find wildly different views. And this kind of national culture has not moved with the same momentum that the UK's has or the US right. has. It could be their position in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The fact that they've seen a much more rapid recovery since the Euro crisis and the fact that even when you look at the larger scale, the last 20 or 30 years have been hugely productive for Ireland. Like mm -hmm. its position in the world has improved dramatically. It's hard, I think, for a lot of people in countries that were doing really well and are now kind of diminished mm -hmm. to feel good about the world. It's easy when you're in a country that was struggling forever and then really made a turn and is now thriving. You know what I think another thing is? What? In the U.S., I mean, I don't know how much people talk about it elsewhere in the world, but the idea of uh, economic disparity between working class people and wealthy people, I think that's mm. risen a lot. When we're talking about that pessimistic viewpoint, that movement of pessimism, I think that is probably where you see it starting. But again, even if you want to look at growing inequality as kind of the root cause of this, inequality has been growing since the 80s. Right. I just don't think it's been talked about as much as it is now. And with the age of information, it's easier to tell people, well, so-and-so is making X amount of money versus the 300 people that work under him that make not even a tenth of what he makes. Yeah, and it, this is the point, right? That like it doesn't matter that it's been happening for a long time. It doesn't matter that it's not a change. It's that people are now focused on it. Mm. And I think it's because people are pessimistic and upset and angry, and they want to find reasons for mm. it. Yep. Like people want to blame growing inequality, or they want to blame race relations, or they want to blame sexual abuse, right. or, or whatever it has to be, because they're upset and they're in a bad mood. And they don't know really the roots of why it is. And I don't necessarily think that it has an obvious root mm. cause. And so they blame whatever thing that they are bothered by, whether it's the fear of losing people's guns a couple years ago or... It's happening now, I think. A lot of people have been talking about it, especially with all those school shootings that have happened in the last two or yeah. three months. Yeah. Like whatever it is you're afraid right. of or angry about. And this is, I think, the point, like... When everyone was optimistic 
seven years ago. And really, I think probably for the last several decades, it was like, whatever these bad things are, yeah, they're bad, but we'll fix them eventually. We'll work through it. We'll figure mm-hmm. it out. When everybody's pessimistic, it's like, these things are the end of the world. And it's this very marked change in perspective right. that cannot be a good thing. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it cannot be beneficial. Probably not. And I think with the radicalization on both sides, when a problem does arise, it becomes immediately a left or right issue. Yeah. They draw almost focus away from what's happening and they turn it into this, well, if you're for that, you're you're a dumb liberal or a stupid conservative. I think that creates a lot of pessimism too. Every issue is now... Partisan. Yeah. There's differing opinions on each side of the aisle, which I don't think allows for solutions. And if there isn't any solutions, then they're just problems. I'm not sure that that's really any worse than it has been. Like I know a lot of people point to it and say that it's worse than it has been. But Clinton got impeached essentially for adultery eh, he lied in the about 90s. It. And ever since then, it's been pretty contentious. Like Obama was attacked constantly during his tenure. And, you know, they said he was a foreigner. They said yeah. you know, he couldn't be president. Like, th- like these partisan attacks and the divide, maybe it's been widening, but it's been pretty bad for a long time. That's true. But you're right. Like, it obviously can't help. Like, none of these things are a good thing and none of them right. help. But it's it's a question of are they the root cause or is the pessimism kind of exacerbating our view of all of these things. And I guess this goes back to the last thing I'll say on this, which is I think this pessimism almost grows out of the failure of a recent optimism and like the radicalization in terms of politics and things like that. It comes from this fundamental change in the world where after 1990, when the Soviet Union fell, when China opened up to the world, when the global economic system was established as it is today, mm-hmm. we no longer had a big enemy. We no longer had a big thing to be afraid of. Global destruction and nuclear holocaust was not a thing that we really worried about from the 90s onward. Right. And so this driving force that forced everyone to be kind of moderate and say, we have to be practical, and we have to figure things out because, you know, communists, they might overrun us at any moment. <laughs> that fear and that kind of intense need to move forward as a country. When you have an external enemy, you have this unifying force right. that forces you to get along to a certain extent. Like there's still conflict, there's still division, but to a certain right. extent. And when that disappeared, at first, I think we seemed obviously dominant in the world and everybody joined kind of our economic system and we were victorious and everyone was happy. But then what that also allowed, and you see it almost immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union, is radicalization to happen because you know before the 90s you couldn't have somebody like bernie sanders who is talking about socialism you couldn't have all of the people in their 20s and 30s now who talk about different communist ideas like that was not allowed within society because you had to be a kind of more moderate kind of person Mm. everyone in politics had to support the military well now you have real pacifists out there right you couldn't have that when the soviet union had their entire military on the border of Germany and Austria ready to invade. Mm. I think that has allowed for this, right? You have more room to disagree with other people and disagree violently with other people because there's no external threat. So now everyone looks at it and the biggest threat is the other side. It's not this external group. It's this internal Mm, group. I see what you're saying. I mean, I think they made a pretty strong effort to create an external enemy with 
people in the Middle East. Terrorists? I mean, not that the Middle East is all terrorists, but yes, terrorists in the Middle East. Right, but you can tell that that's not a serious right. existentialist threat. Right. No, it just, it just occurred to me that they made a really strong effort to do that. Like, ah, this is our yeah, new enemy. Sure. And that's true to a certain extent. And, and it makes sense because as the global system was being established throughout the 90s, the only part of the world that really was completely resistant to it and did not accept the general mores of basic liberalism was the Middle East, right? They are the people that were still hyper-conservative and hyper-parochial. And so it makes sense that that would be kind of the next front in terms of the economic or social conflict. But that's not a serious threat. And it never was a serious threat. Like no one in Saudi Arabia or Jordan or any of those countries was ever going to threaten Seattle, Washington right. or Washington, D.C. or New York. Like those places were never going to get nuked because of that. Right. And so it's just like we have so much more wiggle room for dissent. And that's why when you look at Trump and you look at him saying, oh, we should tear down this whole world order, we should, you know, maybe not support NATO. Well, could you imagine if the Soviet Union was sitting there with troops ready to invade and he said we shouldn't support NATO? Like that would be unimaginable. Now it's imaginable. Now, when you have libertarians saying we should be shutting down bases around the world, it seems reasonable because there's no real reason to have them there if we don't have this giant titan of an enemy ready to attack at any moment, that we may need you know, a million men to be mobilized at any right. moment. And this is, I think, the core of a lot of this, that we've had this progression since the fall of the Soviet Union where we're trying to figure out how to exist in this new world. And we're trying to figure out what our position in it is and how we relate to one another. And it started with this huge swing of optimism. And when that optimism proved unfulfilled, mm. people swung away from the optimism. We swung too hard toward the optimism, I think. And now we've swung really far away from it. Eventually, we'll settle back in as long as nothing apocalyptic happens. Fingers crossed. I guess with all of this... The point is, while people might be feeling pessimistic and while people might be feeling like things are breaking down, it's not true. And we can, as individuals and the way we interact with other individuals, influence this and kind of break the tide. You know what I mean? Like eventually this swings back and it swings back faster if people think about it and try to no longer disseminate these pointless negative views that are not really based in reality. Get it together, people. Get it together. Take all that baggage, throw it out. Get it together. Occasionally, as John and I like to do, we bring up worst threes and best threes. Okay, not occasionally. We've done it once, but we're bringing it back. <laughs> <laughs> we're bringing it back. Yeah. This time, we are only going to do one of the two. We're going to do our worst three work experiences. Yeah, on the topic of pessimism. Yeah. Or negativity, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Do you want to start at the worst or the third from the worst? You know, I can't really rank them. I can only think of situations where I was either unhappy or it was gross. Okay. Well, let's start with gross. I want to hear that. I was 18 or 19 or 20. I don't remember. And I was working at this convenience store and a man walks in and I didn't notice him at the time, but obviously he had to walk into the store to get in there. And I'm pleading 
because that's what I did in the mornings. All of a sudden, I get this really powerful smell of poop. Nice. And I thought I might have stepped in it because I stopped. Like, you know when you see a dog perk up and it's like, what? what's that smell? What's what's going on? Is mm, that me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what happened to me. I perked up and I was like, Where, where's that? Is that me? And then there's this overweight, I think he was homeless. I remember seeing him a lot outside of the store walking around. Okay. And he's all like, oh, do you know where the underwear is? Because we sold clothing, including boxers. Sure. He's like, I seem to have soiled myself. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's over there. He's like, oh, you didn't hear me? He's all like, I shat myself. Sorry for the language. But I was just like, I don't know why you felt the need to repeat that. And he just kind of lingered there for a while and tried to have a conversation with me. And I was like, please, dear God, just go buy the underwear and leave. Don't talk to me. You smell terrible. Not the moment to have a long conversation when you've just soiled yourself. Yeah. That was an experience that that stuck with me that was very, very negative. Very negative. Well, you know, at a convenience store, that's not just retail. That's the lowest rung of retail. That's when you are dealing with all parts of society. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. I'm sure I've had worse, but that one just, ugh. It's visceral. Yeah. You think about it, just like a grown man who soiled himself. One, he had to tell me about it. Two, he tried to talk to me while he was still soiled. Not great. Not great at all. I can still smell it. I hate just thinking about it. It brings (laughs) back terrible memories. All right. Your turn. Let's see. Where to begin? Ooh, John's not had a lot of bad experiences. (laughs) I have. I just, I'm trying to put it together. I used to work... In Los Angeles, I won't say the company, but it dealt with mergers and acquisitions. It was a consulting firm. And my boss was great. One of the best people to work with I've ever worked with. But her boss was an insane person. Mm. And we all kind of worked on the same team. So her boss was kind of my boss, but not really my direct supervisor. And I did a lot of research in this job. And what my boss's boss would sometimes do, which was just just the worst. It still puts my teeth on edge. She would call me into her mm. office, give me an assignment. I would go back, sit down to start working on the assignment. And before I could even like open Excel or, or start on whatever she wanted me to work on, uh-huh. she would yell at me to stop doing whatever I'm doing and do something else. It, it was the kind of thing where she's mad at you for doing the thing that she just told you. Right. Or she describes exactly what she wants you to do. And then when you do that, she wants something completely different. She was one of those people that matched sickening sweetness with abhorrent rage. I've never seen anybody curse as much as this person. (laughs) Just dress down her employees, just rip people to shreds. (laughs) Any interactions with this person. This is when I first developed the concept of emotional judo. Uh, Where when someone comes at you and you have to deal with them and they just come at you and come at you and come at you and really seem like they're trying to destroy you with their words over a long period of time, you have to figure out how to take whatever energy they're throwing at you. Because in judo, it's this whole sport around redirection of someone else's force and redirection of somebody else's strength. The idea is you don't necessarily have to be stronger. You just have to be able to use their lack of balance or their overextension against them. And so when she would throw all of her anger and energy at me, I would just try to 
not let it hit me and take all of this force coming at me and redirect it and send it off. Right. <laughs> there was one particular instance that I remember where it was right before a major event that we were coordinating and planning. I had been moved over to working on this event out of my normal duties. And we were there late one night, mm -hmm. the whole team was. And she called us all in together and one at a time just attacked us and tore us down. Like all five of us, one at a time at like 8 p.m., long after we should have been there on a Friday night, just ripped us each apart <laughs> about how bad we were and how much we undermined the team and didn't support it and didn't get things done fast enough. And I was the most junior person. This was one of my first jobs. Mm -hmm. It was so bizarre because at the time I almost thought that this was normal because it was my first professional position. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, good Lord, good Lord. It's funny because I learned a lot from my direct supervisor mm -hmm. in that job. And I found her to be a great kind of work role model about how to be supportive in a difficult situation and how to help people function in a dysfunctional organization. Mm -hmm. But, oh man, it was rough. It's just all rough. That sounds unfortunate. Yeah, it wasn't great. You know, it seems to me a lot of people who are in higher positions, I don't know if it's because they have a lot on their plate. Sure. I have the same kind of problems with them where they'll tell me to do one thing as I'm doing it or after I've done it, they'll come up to me and they'll be like, why did you do this thing? You told me to. And they're like, I never told you to. <laughs> yeah. What? Yes, you did. They're like, change it. <sighs> yeah. You can't just come at me and tell me to do the opposite of what you just told me to do, it already happened. I'm sorry. There's no going back now. <laughs> Obviously, people make mistakes. They remember things incorrectly. But to be outraged by it, like, how could you possibly have done this? And to just really hammer you. Yeah. It's not a productive thing. And, and I think you're right. Like, when people are in these positions of authority, not just because they're busy, not just because they have a lot of stuff on their plate, but it's kind of like they have authority. They cannot be challenged. They cannot be undermined. And so they enforce their will. Actually... At my current job, I was trying to get this thing done. Yeah. And I got someone, I convinced them to get it. And I let the owner of the company know, oh, I got him to agree to the price. And he was like, no, 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 that's too expensive. I'm like, but you told me that price. He was like, no, it shouldn't be more than this. But you told me the price. And he's like, no, I went there. I saw the place. It shouldn't cost more than this to do that. And so I have to go to this guy. And I'm like, I know we agreed on a price. What can you do for this? And he's like, no, that's impossible. I was almost on the verge of being like, I'll just pay you out of my own pocket. Just do it. I just needed to get it done. <laughs> oh, and man. as yeah, that's the from worst. the tip of my fingers, just on the verge of failing, the owner emails me, goes, oh, you're right. That was the budget. My fault. After days, <laughs> this had been at least two days after he was pushing me and pushing me to do it. But I did realize that after that incident, he now just emails mm -hmm. me the budget and asks me to get it done. Well, and that's what you really need, right? You need the negotiator to have the authority and you need that trust and that respect. Once you establish that sort of respect, then you can start to have a more productive right. working relationship. Yeah, but I think he noticed his own mistake and corrected it in the easiest way, yeah. ever, which I appreciate because now it's much easier for me to get things done. So what's your second one? I don't know if it was one of my worst experiences ever. I like how for both of your first two, it's like, I don't know how bad it was. I probably had worse. <sighs> I just say that because I'm sure I'm missing something. Yeah. You can't remember everything. But I guess they are the worst because these are the ones I immediately remember when I think of these really upsetting times I had at work. Yeah. And so this is when I was working for the car rental company I worked at. And I'd been there a year, almost two. Mm -hmm. It was around Christmas time. The owner 
He was like, can you come and work on Christmas? I was like, sure. That's no problem. I'll come in in the morning and I'll leave in the afternoon. He's like, okay, perfect. So I went in at seven. I would leave by three. Sure. So I get there and it's around 11, something, some, some, something like that. And he calls me and he goes, oh, I have to pick my mother up from the airport. She's flying into town, I guess, for holidays. Can you just stay there the rest of the day? And I'm the only one in the office. And he's like, nice. well, I can't be there and no one else is going to be there. He didn't really ask me. He basically just put me in a position where I couldn't say no. Right, he's telling you. And so instead of being there from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., I was there from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. It's a long one. Yeah. I was so upset. Because when it's Christmas, I was like, well, I was going to spend some time with my family. I guess that's out of the question. And two, I think customers are the worst on Christmas Day. Really? Yeah. They're never in a good mood. They don't want to like chit chat. I mean, I can't imagine that going out to rent a car is what you really wanted to do on Christmas. They could have flown out any other day. They chose that day. They scheduled it then. It's not my fault. Yeah, but if they had to schedule it on Christmas, that means they had some time restraints. And they're probably annoyed and frustrated with the fact that they weren't out there for Christmas Eve. Probably getting a lot of crap from their mother-in-law because they're not where they should be when they should have been because they're putting their job above their family right. and all that. It's not a happy group of people. Right. But I obviously don't want to be there either. I don't need them to be in a bad mood at me. They don't care. You're their paid servant. <sighs> I guess it's true. It was just upsetting and it made me so angry when I think about it now. I'm just, how could you do that to me? Just give me a ridiculously long 16 hour day or yeah. whatever on christmas of all days i had a similar thing when i had to work black friday at macy's mm -hmm. but that doesn't even make it into my top three because my first day working at macy's mm. this is my second one i never really shop because i'm you know a normal person i guess i think normal people shop Fine. I'm not a big buyer of things. Okay. I wear clothes for a decade, and so I don't have to go into shops very often. Side note, I went shopping for the first time, and I want to say three years, like a month ago. It was the worst mistake of my life. I spent so much money. Anyways, go on. You've definitely been shopping since then. I can't imagine that you're wearing the same pair of shoes you were wearing three years yes. ago. Shoes don't last that long. Dude, they were falling apart, I'm telling you. Okay. But anyway, this was my first normal hourly kind of job. Mm. I was working at Macy's. I got this little bit of training beforehand, which was just teaching you basically how to use the register. Right. And my first day, I show up. I get told, oh, I'm going to be up in Homewares. Okay, that's fine. I go up in Homewares. And then I get told, oh, for the first five hours of your shift, you're going to be the only person in Homewares. Now, this is, for those people that don't live in the United States, kind of like M&S. It's kind of like Mark and Spencer's, just without the food. It's a very middle-class department store where people expect the staff to know something I'm the only person on this floor. Immediately, people start coming in and asking me for like different thread counts of sheets and where duvets are. I have no idea. How, how are you putting someone, one, who's never really worked, and two, who's never worked in this company and knows nothing about any of this stuff, in this area by themselves? I've probably been in this part of the store less than all of these people that are asking me questions. Right. I don't know anything about these pans. You want me to tell you about microwaves? I don't know anything about these microwaves. No one's told me anything. I haven't had a chance to look at anything. I haven't had a chance to learn any of this stuff. I cannot help anyone <laughs> at all. And it was just this inundation. And I mean, looking back, obviously, it's not a big deal. And I got through it. It was yeah. fine. But I had to go up and try to figure out this register by myself with like six people waiting. And then other people are asking me to go get things out of the back while I'm trying to ring people up. Like one, one person is not enough for an entire floor of a store mm. like that. Two, 
you can't let somebody that doesn't know anything run this whole floor. That's insanity. And it was not a great experience. Not going to lie. I had some angry customers. Of course you did. Let's just say that. All right. What's your worst? The worst of the worst. Bottom of the barrel. I think it'd have to be a similar experience to yours at this job. Okay. Where on my very first day, I get there. It's not very well organized. Training wise. Okay. They just kind of pawned me off on someone. They were like, oh, this person's going to help teach you the ropes. We know that you don't know much. So don't worry. She'll show you everything you need to know. I think she had just come back from vacation or being sick. The point is she had been gone for probably like two or three weeks. And so this is her first day back. Yeah. And she's all over the place and she's helping me and she's, oh, just take notes, take notes. I'm taking notes. And she keeps asking me these questions. She's like, you understand, right? You understand? I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a moron. No, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> and she's yeah. like, well, you do this, you do that. And she's kind of trying to teach me and she's also trying to catch up on her work. And after about three hours of sort of kind of trying to teach me and catching up on her work, she walks me over to a computer, sits me down or asked me to sit down. She didn't like hold me and put me in the seat, but <laughs> uh, she's like, okay, just sit here. And then she has me do all the sign in and login stuff. And I was like, so you understand it, right? You, you know what to do. And I was like, you gave me the notes. I kind of get it. Sure. And she was like, okay. And she opens the portfolio for me and she goes, well, get to work. And I was like, wait, what? I, there, there's so many things I don't know. <laughs> Like, I just watched you use the software. I didn't actually do anything with it hands-on. And now you expect me to just right, yeah. explode into all these work orders and coordinate things and budget things and tell people what to do and tell people where to go. Yeah, someone kind of half-heartedly showing you how to do something is not the same as you practicing it and learning how to do it yourself. Yeah, and so I'm sitting there for the next whatever number of hours sort of just hey, so-and-so, what do you do again? Like, I, you know, I wrote some notes down, but yeah, there's just yeah. certain things that I can't really note down and do. Or I'm right. like, oh, wh- what about this? Because I don't know. I don't know if this is a big deal, if that's a big deal. She's like, oh, some things are emergencies. I'm like, like what? And she's like, um, plumbing can be an emergency. I'm like, is every plumbing thing an emergency? She's like, no, just some things. Oh, oh, and there's other things that don't send someone out. Make sure that you ask the tenant for this. Right. It's all the small minutia that you would know if you did this job for four weeks. But yeah. on the first day, it's like you're just throwing you into the yeah. fire. I just felt so annoyed. I was like, you just tossed me into the fire. Like, I don't I don't know what's going on. Mm. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who I'm sending for what. I don't know if this is okay. I don't know yeah. if this is wrong. So now I'm also in this position where... I have to send things out and I'm not really sure how to phrase them or what I'm saying exactly or why I'm doing it. And that's the worst. I hate having to tell people things without knowing why I'm telling them those things. Because then when they ask me questions, I'm there stuttering like a fool. Yeah. You're only at the service level. You can't go any Right. Deeper. And so that whole day was just frustrating. I was so angry. I was in a situation where I was almost going to just start looking for a new job. I was like, this is so poorly organized. You know, if they don't care about training their employees right, what am I going to learn from you guys? It's <laughs> worthless. The next day was much better, though. I will, <laughs> I will yeah. follow up. Yeah. Because it was Monday. Because I started on a Friday. Monday was much better. She was much more helpful. And <laughs> I ended up learning a lot more over the next two days. Yeah, I feel like this is common, not just with work, but with anything new you learn. That when you first start, you feel super incompetent and it's impossible to do anything. Mm-hmm. And after you do it, just... Two or three times. Oh, oh! suddenly it's all okay and it's men. Right. John, worst experience? The worst of the worst? Bottom of the heap? Yeah. 
my worst experience, and this is only kind of quasi work because I wasn't actually working, but when I moved to Korea, I flew there from Europe. I flew there from Hungary uh, in particular. I think I remember this story. You know yes. the story. <laughs> and I was supposed to fly there. It's his own fault. It's not really. No, I'm kidding. I was supposed to fly there, and it was supposed to be easy. There was supposed to be a bus to pick me up. This is what happened to most of the people that were flying there. We were all going to work at public school in Korea. I was supposed to fly in, get picked up by a bus, get driven to this uh, kind of university campus for a week of training. And we were going to stay there, and it was all going to be great and easy. My flight got messed up, so I ended up having to take a different flight. And this flight arrived at the wrong airport and arrived a few hours later than my previous flight. And so the bus was already going to be gone. So I had to find my own way. Okay, fine. But I didn't realize that by the time I arrived, because I was making all of this stuff last minute because my flight was canceled, right? So I, I had to adjust on the fly. And I didn't realize that by the time I arrived, there would be no more buses or trains that day to go down to where the university was so that I could get there. So I had to stay the night up where I was flying in, in mm -hmm. Seoul. I arrived so late that all of the metros were shut down and the buses had stopped running. I didn't have reception. I didn't have a SIM card for that country. Mm -hmm. So I had no way of calling a cab if I wanted to call a cab. I couldn't communicate with anybody in a cab. I couldn't read the alphabet. So I was like, okay, I found out a route to take buses once the buses right. start. So I'm just going to sleep here on a bench outside of the airport. Not a big deal. That's fine. I've roughed it. At this point, I had been traveling in Europe for several months. You know, I had multiple nights where I ended up on a bench. It's not a big deal. Sean's the only person I know who's okay with sleeping on a bench in some foreign country. You know, when you're traveling and you're kind of hoofing it and playing things by ear, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you're stuck in Verona for a night and you happen to be on a bench. What are you going to do? Can't argue with that. So this is all fine. You know, whatever. Like, I'm dealing with it. It is what it is. So I sleep on this bench because also I didn't really want to get a hotel room because I was going to be up as soon as the buses started at 5 a.m. Mm. And it was already one or two. So I was like, I might as well just chill for a few hours. So I tried to knock out, get a few hours sleep. It's fine. I get up. I get the bus. Okay. At this point, we're all good so far, right? I'm on the right bus, going the right direction. It's great. Now, I've got all my bags and things because I'm moving to this country. So I'm kind of weighed down and it's hot and it's sweaty because it's in the middle of the summer in August. I've got a peat coat mm. on because I had brought this peat coat with me because I knew winters would be cold there and I'd been traveling for a long time. And so I'm really hot and really sweaty. It's really early in the morning. It's still dark. I get on this bus. The bus is fine. But I realize that I know what stop I need to get off at. I have it on my phone. Mm -hmm. And I can see the symbols of the letters in Korean, but I don't know what they sound like. Right. And the bus just announces uh, like audio, uh, auditorially with sound, <laughs> just, just announces with sound what the different stops are. And so I have no real way of telling what stop they're saying, like if it matches up with what's written. Right. I don't know the phonics of Korean yet. So I have to take this bus, I get off, change buses and take the next bus all the way to a train station, take that train down to this other city where the university is, then get a cab in that city to the university, right? So this is already going to be one hell of a trek, but I can't really tell where to get off. So I'm staring at my phone because even though I don't have reception, and this is pro tip for anybody traveling, even if you don't have reception, GPS still works. So you can still have the GPS on to tell exactly where you are or exactly where to get off. So I'm tracking this and I'm trying to figure out where to get off, and then I eventually get off. I know that I'm close, but I ended up getting off a stop after I should have gotten off. 
Unfortunately for me, this was the worst place to miss by one stop because we were on this big highway type thing and we had gone over this massive bridge that pedestrians couldn't walk across. And I got off and I'm like on the side of a highway and I have no idea where I am. It's dark. So I'm trying to figure out how do I walk back to this last bus stop. I end up having to kind of walk off of the highway on this elevated bridge over this rice paddy and it's wet and swampy and hot and smelly. I end up going across and then I have to cross this kind of platform canal type river thing. <laughs> that platform bridge. <laughs> yes. And then all of the little stepping stones to get across this little river and then up the big platform bridge over the rice paddy. And then I'm at the bus stop. And as I'm walking up to the bus stop, I see the bus that I needed to transfer to that I was supposed to have like 20 minutes before it got there leaves. Okay, great. So I see it. It leaves. Wonderful. So I missed it. So I have to wait for, I think it was about an hour. I, I had to wait for almost an hour for the next bus because, you know, it's 5 a.m. Like, obviously, you're not going to have buses every 10 mm. minutes. So fine. I wait for an hour. It gives me time to catch my breath after this little ordeal. Luckily, for this bus, once I get on, I can just take it to the end of the line and it goes to the train station. So that's grand. So I take it to the train station. I get on this train. I think I sit in the wrong seat because I... I'm just all over the place at this point. But I get on the train. I take a seat. Nobody bothers me because I'm a foreigner. And they're like, this is going to be uncomfortable if I try to ask him about his wrong seat. And so that's fine. I take the train down to Daejeon. I get out in Daejeon. I get the cab. I get to the university where we have orientation. Now, unfortunately, this day as I arrive, a day late, I'm told that I can't eat or drink anything because we have to have our medical checkups. So... After not having really eaten or drank anything for the last day, as I've been going through this whole thing, now I can't eat or drink now because <laughs> in two or three hours, we're going to have medical checkups and we have to get our blood taken and urine samples and all of that. Wonderful. Perfect. Just what I wanted. But you know, you deal with it. And immediately I have to go into social mode because I'm with 200 other new teachers in this country that have to all get to know each other and build contacts. This is the moment over the course of the next week where we have to kind of establish our social network for the year that we're going to be there. And so, you know, there's this immediate kind of almost weird buzz and social pressure to figure out, you know, who you're going to be friends with and to try to meet people and get to know them. And I'm obviously completely exhausted, worn out, hungry, tired. So I'm not, I'm not in the best position, but I go up to my room, I take a shower, do the medical check, the rest of the day goes fine. Eventually I could eat and the world goes back to normal as it should. I know that might sound rough, but where it really gets bad, that night I go to sleep, I wake up the next morning and I find the next day that I am completely devoured by bed bugs, <laughs> just bitten up to the nth degree. Oh my goodness. Completely, completely devoured. Beautiful. And I'm feeling really woozy and weird. And when I first get up, I figure it's just jet lag and feeling kind of rough because I didn't eat and I was in a weird position the whole previous day. And I didn't sleep and all of that. But I look in the mirror and it's just red spots everywhere and just bites. At first, I thought it was like an allergic reaction or a rash or something, but they were definitely bites. They were definitely bites. So... I go down to class and it's great. But so this, this is an orientation type thing where we have all of these different courses and things to adjust us to the culture and to prepare us for teaching in Korean schools in particular. And they teach us some basic Korean and various different things. I go to this first course where because I'm so out of it, I'm so woozy and all of this, I'm a bit late to the first mm -hmm. course. Not a great start, 
obviously. Yeah, I would say you're batting a big old zero. Yeah, so people, you know, are all staring at me as I walk in late to this thing. These other 50 people in the course, which are also the, all of the other teachers that are going to go live in the city that I'm moving to in Korea. So, you know, great for my initial reputation. And about 20 minutes into the course, I just feel a bit unwell. So I stand up and walk out to the bathroom and just start projectile vomiting into this trash can. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, this is great. I'm assuming it's because of this weird allergic reaction to these bed bugs or something. Or I, I don't even know. Maybe it was something I ate. I have no idea why this happened. But I'm feeling terrible. I rinse my mouth, walk back to the classroom, and deal with it for the rest of the day. Later that day, I talked to some of the staff that's working at this place. I'm like, hey, I got all bitten up. My roommate and I end up, because we were two to a room in this situation, we get moved to another room. Eventually, the bites all go away, and I'm fine. And everything gets better from there. This is definitely the nadir <laughs> of this whole experience. But that has got to be the worst experience I've ever had in a work setting. That sounds terrible. I think that wins. Yeah, it wasn't great. I think of the sick experience we did, that's definitely the worst because bed bugs. Yeah. 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 Sounds like something that would happen to you, John. <laughs> yeah. No, my girlfriend likes to say, only you. This would only happen yeah. to you. Only you would get yourself in this sense. Yeah. I don't like to think that John is unlucky, but I do like to think that he lets things happen without thinking them ahead and then it just turns into bad luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you are more flexible and put yourself in increasingly compromising situations then sometimes bad things happen most of the time it works out most of the time it's fine but every once in a while things don't work out properly yeah, i gotta say despite how things may not work out john is always the optimist you gotta be man because generally things do work out we talk a fair amount on here about Education and learning and memory. A lot, yes. And reform or progress in those areas. One of the things that most gets to me is the structure of university. And I have some ideas I thought we should explore about how we might change universities. Because it's all good and well to criticize the school system. If you don't have good proposals for how to change it, it's kind of pointless and serves no function. So, John... You have some solutions, finally. I Well, I have some possible ideas to explore. Okay. After several months of bashing education, now we're ready to drop some knowledge on you about how it should be done. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd bash it, but yeah, certainly uh, constructively criticizing education. Yeah, system. okay. After <laughs> constructively criticizing, definitely not bashing. No, definitely not bashing. <laughs> There's violence there, but... I think what my problem with university comes down to is a fundamental question of what is the function and purpose of university. Primary, secondary education, they serve to give basic training and basic standards in terms of arithmetic and writing, reading, other basic knowledge of history and how the government works and things like that. That largely serves its function, I think. Not as well as it could, but it largely serves its function. Okay. University, on the other hand, faces a difficult situation where there are two theories of what their purpose is. One theory is the kind of more traditional theory where it's supposed to provide an education. It's supposed to make someone who is well-rounded. You know, the liberal arts tradition where in a university like UCLA, 
you can't even major in business because they're not thinking an undergraduate is a practical degree. An undergraduate is to give you theoretical basic understanding of a subject. So you can major in economics and then get a master's in business. This is, some would say, an outdated perspective, but it's certainly a perspective that a lot of people hold. The point is to make an educated populace, not to create anything particularly practical. Mm. The other side of that divide is people who think of university as job training. You know, this is somebody who thinks about teacher training or training to be a nurse or something like that, where you are being provided specific skills so that you can do a specific job. Mm. And that's why you require qualifications. That's why to be a psychiatrist, you need masters in psychology or what have you. Yeah. These things, to a certain extent, make sense. The problem is that these have been clumped into the same kind of degree and they've been clumped into the same structure. Mm, so we separate them and create two schools. Well, one, certainly you could separate them. But two, I think it's just the university, it's too much of a blunt object. Gotta refine it, make it sharper, a little more precise. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, that's well put, actually. Because most things that people study mm. at university don't require four or five years to learn them. And there are some things at university that really you should be spending more than four years studying. When you're talking about becoming a mechanical engineer, the odds that you could learn everything that you need to learn in four years and have a really good handle on it, pretty low. A lot of people struggle with that. Mm. And it's only getting more difficult as we advance further and further. When you're talking about another type of course, like, I don't know, if you're taking a communication degree, right. that's extremely useful. But is there really enough material that you need to spend four years learning how to communicate? Well, interpersonal communication, public speaking, speaking in the settings of like meetings. What I'm really asking if you're taking a communication degree is when you take that, do you need to have a, a deep understanding of all forms of communication in all contexts? Or are you trying to get something more specific and narrow. Mm, that's true. And this is where I think universities would benefit from having smaller, narrower qualifications or certifications. Mm, okay. Let's take that example of communication. We're holding it. What if they could certify that someone has knowledge around public speaking? Mm. This person wants to, I don't know, become a, a manager in a company right. and they need to be good enough at public speaking that they can speak in front of their employees and maybe they can speak at conferences or speak at meetings or whatever. Right. They don't need other communication qualifications. That's the thing that they want. And they also need basic skills in accountancy and they also need basic skills in finance and they need good writing and reading skills. Let's just say that. Okay. Okay. Currently, if you major in business at university, an employer has no idea what you studied. They have no idea the courses you took. They have a general sense that you should know something about finance and mm. something about marketing, but they have no specifics. If you had it where to get a basic finance qualification, you have to take three finance courses or four finance courses. To get a basic accountancy right. qualification, you have to take three or four accounting courses that have specific requirements mm. of knowledge. Then somebody, like let's say you're already in a job and you didn't have any degree, and you've worked there for five years, but you want to move into kind of the accounting side, you want to move into accounts receivable or something of your company. Well, they can say, okay, over the next six months, take these four courses to get this accounting qualification, a university degree, a bachelor's, all of the other courses, the other 40 courses you're going to take do nothing to help you right. with accountancy. 
those four courses are all you need. Hmm. And so if you only need that knowledge around accountancy in order to move into this new position in your company, well, then have them only take those. And if you could have more specific qualifications like that, it would be more practically useful, especially for employers. So if you're looking at it on the side of university as job training, as a tertiary education to prepare people for professional life, these sorts of narrow qualifications, I think, are much more useful. Yeah, that does seem like a pretty good system. Now, the problem with this is... Quick interjection then. I think this is also useful for people who don't necessarily want to get a degree, but work in a particular setting. Yeah. Where it just validates their experience or it helps them move up in their company. Well, and it hopefully would clarify their knowledge and help them develop specific skills. Like there's a very clear connection between you're doing this for this. You're doing this to be able to do this. That as well. And so before we get into how this could go towards an actual degree, if that's something someone wants to work towards... I think your ideas also really would be really valuable for people who maybe don't want to put in that time or don't necessarily care about getting a degree. Right. And this is the side benefit Mm. to this whole thing, that universities currently are these closed systems. If I am, a, I don't know, a plumber who works for a big plumbing company, and I want to go start my own plumbing company, and I want to take a couple courses at a university to figure out some of these things... Well, I can't do that because I need to be applying to the university and getting on like a matriculation path to where I will be pursuing a degree. I don't want to pursue a degree. I just want to take five or six courses that relate specifically to what I'm trying to do. And that's currently closed. But if you offered these smaller qualifications, you could allow somebody to apply for, you know, management qualification, which is like four or five classes. And that's all I'm going to do. So that in of itself is a huge Mm. benefit. And and it would allow for kind of university education to get closer and to integrate more with what we currently have in terms of kind of skills education and trade schools. Mm -hmm. But obviously, as it is now, if I walk into an employer's office and I say, I have a certificate in, I don't know, accounting. And this other guy walks into an employer's office and says, I have a degree in accounting or I have a bachelor's in accounting. The bachelor's is going to win. No one's going to look at this and say, oh, you took four courses. Congrats. It doesn't have the prestige. It doesn't have the respect. There is that aspect of university, which a lot of people kind of focus on. And a lot of people really think is the value of university to begin with, which is that it separates the people that have completed university from the people that haven't. And it says, this person is very likely to be a good worker and a good employee. They're consistent. They're hardworking. They've past this major hurdle that is expensive and time-consuming and difficult. And so they're probably going to be a better employee than anybody who hasn't done it, no matter if they learned anything or did not learn anything at university. That is a problem. And so I still think that you would want to have larger degrees. So the structure that I'm kind of imagining with this is broken down into these smaller qualifications that can then be combined into a larger qualification. And I think of this kind of in the context of what already exists, which is minors. Right. So minors are these little appendages that you add to your major where you take five to 10 courses on a specific subject and you get this kind of quasi additional qualification with your degree. When I went to university, I had three different minors and they were great at broadening my perspective and providing me additional information in in different areas. But currently, if you tell an employer, oh, I have a minor in something, it's essentially like saying, oh, I don't have anything. Like it, it's kind of 
pointless. Very few employers really look at it and say, oh, wow, great. That minor in economics really is what made us hire you. Really, the bachelor's is the only thing that matters currently, and then a master's if you have that. But if you looked at minors and you said, instead of having a major, quote unquote, and a minor, quote unquote, in like general education, you would just have a bunch of different minors make up mm. your degree. Right. And the benefit of this, one of the benefits of this, is that it would give you more diversity in mm. terms of degree options. And for a university degree, in the same way that you currently have 120 units or what have you as a standard number of units to graduate from a semester university, you would have a certain number of these minors, which each have a particular number of units. So you would still have it be structured in a mm. particular way. And this would all have to right. develop and grow. But it would be a different structure from today. And there are a few particular advantages. One, like I just mentioned, you have a much more diverse array of degrees that you could pursue. So if you want to pursue an engineering degree, but you also want to learn aspects of business and you want to learn aspects of economics so that you can go on the business side of engineering, then you can do that because you can recombinate things. You can say, you know what, I'm not going to take some of the sciences around maybe biology or something because I'm going to just be a mechanical engineer. And so I'm just going to take my sciences relating to that and my mechanical engineering and some business courses. And th that will actually be useful. Like currently you can take some business courses, but they don't count for anything. They're not measurable. They're, you can't see right. that somebody has them. And likewise, we talked a number of shows ago about how we could change university in terms of stretching it out, how it might be ideal to not have it be clumped together in four years, right? Mm. I think this would allow somebody, like let's say you need 10 mm. of these little minors, right? Or five of them. I don't know how many you would need. But let's say you need five or six. I'm sure it would definitely depend on what you're studying. Yeah, of course, of course. Before you graduate or before you finish all six, you might start working. So you might complete two before you start working. And then as you're working, you complete one every two years or something like that. You take a couple courses as you go. And this would allow you to have a partial qualification before you start. Like a lot of jobs might require you to have two of these minors. So instead of needing to have a full degree and just everyone for all of the jobs says you have to have a bachelor's, you could say, oh, we don't really need a full bachelor's. We just need these couple of smaller right. qualifications. But people still want to get to the bachelor's eventually because for the higher level positions in that company, you would need a bachelor's. So you take these couple of qualifications, you get them done. And then over the course of the next five to 10 years, you finish off the rest of the qualifications in order to get to the bachelor's. And as you go, you're continually right. progressing and picking up additional small qualifications that allow you to progress in your career and allow you to gain more skills. And this means that your skills and everything that you're learning stays fresher. That means that you can adjust your path as you go and as you figure out right. where your career is going. You can change the specialties. And having them each be independently useful and stand on their own merits, as well as be part of this larger degree, would be just hugely beneficial, I think. I think that's true, too. What you were talking about with that liberal arts approach, I think it could also work in this way. Mm-hmm. Do tell. Like you were saying, generally more classical ideas to sort of have a theoretical approach to whatever you're learning. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you break it up into minors, then people can almost set their own majors right. without yeah, them sure. being technical 
sections. If they're interested specifically in a certain time in history, they could take those history courses. They could take courses related to literature that coincide with that point in history and take, I don't know, whatever other courses that might be related to that and move towards a master's degree while sort of creating their own major in whatever they're interested in. So you build this very specialized course for yourself without necessarily doing it to move forward with a more like practical approach. No, you're right. You could definitely use this on that side of things. Like I think the argument for change on the Mm. liberal arts side of university is less compelling because a lot of liberal arts universities, one of the things that they bring forth is a lot of general education, right? So they require you to sample a lot of different subjects. And this would kind of make it so that you only had to sample the things that you were actually interested in and the things you actually wanted to study. And so it doesn't have the same requirement of breadth and being well-rounded that current right. arts courses But would. I think it allows for that. You know what I mean? No, it, de- it definitely allows for it. Right. It just doesn't require it. But no, you're right. You, you could absolutely apply this in that context. And I think also you made a point about not necessarily progressing towards a master or maybe wanting to progress towards a master's. But I think the benefit of this is that the difference between dropping out one semester before you graduate and finishing the degree goes away. Now, that's a huge difference. If you drop out one semester before you graduate, it's almost like you didn't go. It it serves very little purpose. It's not very beneficial. Mm. In this instance, you can say, you know, I have six minors instead of the seven to finish this larger thing or what have you. And you still have all of those qualifications. It would be a more metered thing. So some people might have 10, some people might have five, but like you could dial it up or dial it down depending on what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go, how competitive it was to get certain jobs. You wouldn't have to always take all of those courses. And I think it would provide more competition with employers if there's competition for employees to reduce their education requirements as opposed to now where you can't really drop below requiring the mm-hmm. bachelor's for a lot of jobs because then you just open it up to everybody. Like if you want to filter it at all, you have to filter it right. at the bachelor's level. And I do find another fascinating thing about this, especially if you can accumulate minors in this way. Mm-hmm. The more you accumulate, the higher level courses you could take, which specialize in anything in particular. So this seems something sure, like you yeah. could do beyond a bachelor's degree if you had this sort of system implemented where you can move towards more specialized, I don't know, accounting or finance courses or something to create that master's degree. And more importantly, to me, it seems like it's something that you could do as a, as a lifelong achievement. You know, absolutely. What I find fascinating about that is that it allows you to go to school on and off as you need to, to improve your professional life, as well as meet yeah. any educational goals you might want over the course of like several years, not just take three years or work part-time and focus on getting your master's degree for three years and work some dead-end job to get your yeah. bachelor's degree so you can move into a professional career. I think it creates a lot of flexibility, which I think would be super it effective does. for everybody who's interested. It allows you to spread it over yeah. the course of decades if you want to, yeah. That's absolutely true. Now, one of the difficulties with it is that you do need interoperability, right? So currently, if you have a bachelor's in anything from any recognized university, you can go use that bachelor's as the kind of prereq for mm. any master's program, right? That is universally right. recognized. When you take specific courses, they are not universally recognized, right? So even like I went to 
University in the state of California at the California State Universities. And these are all universities that are in the same system, run by the same organization. And if you're transferring between even those universities with some courses already finished at one, you can't necessarily use them at another one of the universities. So if you took American history up to the Civil War at one university and you transfer to another university, sometimes that won't count and you'll have to take that course over again. Mm. So that is a weakness of our current system that individual courses do not transfer mm. very effectively. But that is a flaw that derives from the fact that whatever university you graduate from is the university that provides you the degree. It's as though any university that you attended before that, any courses you took at any other university, that all happened at the right. final university. This allows you not just, as we were talking about the flexibility, but it would allow you to take some of your courses at one university. Once you finish that smaller qualification, then you go to a different university. So it also allows you more flexibility in terms of where you're studying and what you're specializing in in different places. But you would need all of the universities to recognize these various smaller degrees. You know, degrees. I don't even think that would be impossible. I mean, you could administer like a basic competency test or something just to prove that they have that general knowledge that you need. Yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't think it would be impossible because one of the benefits, as, as I was trying to get at, is that each of these qualifications is established independently, right? So you get whatever, a, a degree for each of these little minors nice. that we're talking about. So it's not like the university that you're transferring to that now has to accept that you finished these degrees has to vouch for mm. them or something. Right. Like currently, if you transfer in the middle of a degree, they have to vouch for all of the coursework right. that you already finished. And so if you were at a worse institution, like if you're going from, I don't know, a low-level private university to Harvard, they have to vouch for all of these other courses that you took mm. before you transferred. So maybe they don't feel comfortable with that because they don't know how good the courses were. But if you already have this qualification, they don't have to vouch for anything. They're just vouching for the additional courses that you took at their institution. And that, I think, is a much easier thing to do. In the same way that they don't have to vouch for anything that you learned during your bachelor's, they just recognize that you have a bachelor's, and they vouch for the courses that they provided in the right. master's course. That's currently how it works. And I think that that could be expanded into this. But yeah, like the benefits seem so numerous and so obvious that I think this is a direction that we should be going down. And this is a direction that also meshes much more closely with the progress that we've seen in terms of digital education. And when you look at websites like Skillshare, where you can take very specific small courses to develop skills, whether it's in programming or language or animating mm. or anything, or you look at even things like edX, right. where they have different courses from Harvard and MIT online, you, you take these different things and you can build smaller certifi certifications. You can get course credit for just that right. single course. It's more of these piecemeal type mm. situations. Or you look at Khan Academy, where it's more for lower level people, not university level necessarily, but you have this thing where you're gradually building skills in particular areas and you're building kind of sub-qualifications or not really qualifications, but you're building knowledge in particular areas. There is this balkanization mm. that is happening and the university has kind of defended itself by being this huge requirement that everybody requires. Mm. Yes. And the more versatile they get, the more competitive they will be in the long run. Because at a certain point, universities, if they remain as stringent and stuffy and unreformed as they are now, they're just going to collapse and nobody's going right. to go to university anymore. 
Like, I don't know when that tipping point happens, but there will be a point where there are better, cheaper alternatives and no one looks at that and says, that makes sense. Already people look at university and say, it's too expensive and it doesn't really provide practical education Mm. in a lot of instances. Yeah. And at the point where it's no longer the social cultural requirement for a lot of social status and Mm -hmm. a lot of positions, no one will go or many, many fewer people will go and the whole industry will collapse. So they need to embrace some sorts of reforms like these. And I think that this would uh, be a good kind of intermediate phase. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I have an idea, John. Here's what we do. We start our own university. We implement the system. And then scorched earth, baby. (laughs) Just saying. Just saying. I don't think we have the funding or the acumen to do that. We'll learn that on the way. And people trick (laughs) other people out of money all the time. I'm sure we could find a rich sucker. I mean, investor. To pay into it, several even. Yeah, yeah. Plus, we do a lot of, you know... Delegation? There we go. We'd be delegating it to more qualified people all the time. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've thought about how I would go about starting university. Because, I mean, this is definitely an area ripe for disruption and ripe for reform. So, yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think it's a thing that should be done. Yeah. And I wouldn't be opposed to participating in it. But it would be much easier and more effective if it began within existing universities, I think. Mm. Like, it's going to be hard to disrupt from the outside because there is such a huge barrier to entry and a huge kind of entrenched advantage of the existing incumbents. I guess. I mean, if we get accredited and a bunch of people want to go to the university, I'm just saying, if it were successful, people would see the model and be interested in it. It's true. I mean, and this is this is exactly the difficulty, and this is why I wonder about where the tipping point is, but... If somebody currently goes to an employer and says, hey, I have this, you know, four course qualification, every employer is going to look at that and be like, what the hell is that? That's not anything. They could just be like, oh, I got a certification from a university that specializes in exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, I know. But I think what I'm saying is you need a bigger cultural and social change with all of this. You, You need a big shift. And that's why I think like the first step of this if somebody really wanted to see this happen would be to like, let's say you're the president of a university, which I am (laughs) to start, not by offering these smaller qualifications, but to start by offering the flexibility of people already pursuing bachelor's degrees and saying, instead of following these specific courses in the way that we've always structured them, you just have to have a combination of seven different smaller groupings, smaller minors, right? So it's like start by reorganizing the bachelor's degree Mm. so that it's broken into these smaller modules. And once you've reorganized the bachelor's degree and like this has started to become more entrenched, then you can start opening up these smaller specific qualifications to people outside of that track, not pursuing a bachelor's degree. Whether they already have a bachelor's degree and they just want a little extra expertise in a particular area Mm. or whether they're not getting a degree at all and just want a little bit of extra knowledge. And I think that that would be the most likely to succeed route, right? So you reform within, then you allow others to access it, and then it starts to become a more accepted thing. You know what I also like about that idea that I'm thinking of now? I think Hmm. it would make some employers who have good employees and that want to keep them, invest in them. 
Yeah. Well, and it's a more it's a more nuanced tool. So it's easier for an employer to say, hey, I want these people to learn about this specific thing rather than to say, hey, I need you to go get an MBA. You're going to take, you know, two years away, spend a lot more money and learn all sorts of random things. It's much easier to say, I want you to learn these specific things. Go get that. Yeah. And it's also for all of those employers now who are doing you know, machine learning analysis on employees and are trying to figure out, you know, what really indicates who a good employee is or who's going to learn well or who's going to be effective. Like this provides a lot more data and allows a lot more minute adjustment. Okay. So you can say, you know, we found that people with this particular little minor Mm -hmm. are really, really effective and all of the rest of it doesn't really matter. So we're just going to hire people that have this. Mm, That is pretty fascinating. I didn't think about that at all. So this seems like a good idea. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Should we wrap it up? Yes. Yes, I think we should. Okay. You can find our show notes and links to anything we mentioned on the show today at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 025. And if you want to share your worst work experiences, you are definitely more than welcome to follow us on Twitter and share your experiences with us. Yeah, add us on Twitter. At underscore WWOTS. You can find us both there. I guess I will talk to you next week. Mark. Talk to you then. All right, bye. Bye.
This thing is literally just flying right above my apartment. Just right above it. Like, I can see it when it circles out, and it's just like... Helicopters, man. They're the worst. And it's just in this area, this very particular area. Go that way. It's obviously whatever you're looking for is not here. You already went around three times. Move. Like, whatever you're looking for, you're not going to find it faster. People can hide under things. I don't know what I was really going with there, but you, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. 